Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. We've been reflecting on the character aspects of God, so we're doing our Advent calendar, Advent wreath, rather, um, lighting candles. Last week was, was all virtual um, because I did not want to get anybody sick. And um, so we did, uh, we reflected on holiness. We did just a short uh, lighting of the uh, holiness candle, which was the plan to do it short anyway, because we were going to do a games night. More on that later, but we didn't do a games night. Um, but, but holiness, we talked about in general, just to review really quickly, holiness is basically, it's, it's, the, it's the idea that God is other. He is so different from the rest of us that there's a strangeness to him. There's an otherness to him. Um, but with God, that, that otherness is really interesting because the otherness has to do with his completion and his perfection of everything. So he's very other. He's very different, but in ways which are somehow still familiar to us. So, for example, we all know that love is a good thing and we understand love. And as human beings, we know that we like being loved and we like loving and, and we like working through that. But we also know every human being in the world that we know has some self-interestedness in their love and some selfishness in their love and some insecurities in their love and some neediness in their love, some possessiveness in their love, some controlling natures in their love. And because even among the best of us, those things creep in, we have never experienced in human contact a love that is completely just love. And so when we think of God, the thing about his otherness is that every aspect, every attribute, every character quality that he has is perfect and complete and pure. It it, it describes the totality of him. Every individual attribute can be used to describe the totality of God. That's why John says God isn't just loving. God says, John says God is love because he is that complete in his ability to love. And so when you really start to think about what it means to be loved by somebody who has no self-interest, who has no insecurities, who has no possessive controlling nature, who has no uh, flaw in their love, who has no neediness in their love, then you realize it begins so it becomes so other that it's incomprehensible to us. We, we, we approximate our understanding of God's love, but when we think of it, it's always got this disappointment in it. It's always got this flaw to it because that's all we've seen. And this is the nature of God's otherness, that every attribute he has is so total and complete that when we start to think of it, it makes this being that is just completely unlike anything we've ever seen. And, it, and it's everything. Even just think about being present. Being present is a thing that we're capable of, right? We're here. I'm here. You're here. We even talk about when people who are really present with you, they're like focused and you know that they're there and they know they're there and they know you're there. That's a good thing, right? We like that present. So what would it mean for God and his otherness to be completely present? It would mean that he's present everywhere all the time. And in fact, That is what God is. But then when we start to think about what it means to be everywhere all the time, it gets beyond our comprehension. There's a real strangeness and an otherness to it. Being relational, being part of a community, being able to interact with other people is is a positive thing. People who are relational make us feel special and loved because they know how to be part of a community. God is not only relational, he is, in his holiness, a relationship himself. He is the Trinity. He is three in community. So all these things of God, every attribute you think of, you take it out to its extreme end, 
without flaw, without failure, in completion, in perfection, and there's a point at which it becomes beyond our comprehension. And that is the holiness of God. So tonight, as we reflect on justice, we'll see the same thing. We have a sense of justice. We have an idea of justice. But it becomes difficult for us to even understand what justice is. And the further we push it out towards extremes, the more we realize that God, in his justice, is also other and yet familiar. He is everything that we understand and desire about justice, and yet he's so perfect in it that at a certain point it becomes incomprehensible to us to even understand how these all work together. So to start talking about justice, because that is our reflection this evening, as we start thinking about justice, I want to read a verse which I think probably plays into the scary aspect of justice for a lot of us. There's one thing that's interesting about justice, and it is a, it's a cultural thing. And that's that when you read the scriptures and you read the Old Testaments and you read the Israelites' response to the idea of God's justice, they almost never reacted with the fear and the negativity that we react with, which is interesting and might mean we're seeing it differently. Somehow, when they talk about justice, it's an encouragement, it's a hope, it's a desire even. But for us, a lot of the times, justice and judgment feel very negative, scary. So we're going to start by affirming that side. <laughs> but also so we can maybe see why to the Israelites that isn't such a bad thing. So Isaiah 1, 11 through 17, I think, gives us a picture of a God who is judging the Israelites. He's mad. And this is what he says. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Now we're going to stop here because it's a really important question because the answer is God did. <laughs> here he is saying to the Israelites, why are you doing all these sacrifices? Why do you come in and out of my temple bringing these bulls and rams and lambs? Why are you doing this? And he knows that they know the answer to that is because he asked them to. So what has happened? What has changed? God being holy and perfect has not changed because God is not fickle. So the God who told them, bring these sacrifices to me, is now for some reason telling them he's disgusted by their sacrifices. And this is not the only place he says this. This comes up in the prophets a lot. The question is, what changed? If you look back at when God first commanded it, it's interesting, he said to them, it had to do with justice and judgment. He said to them, look, I am a perfect God, holy, and I want you to try to be the same. But then God said, but I know who you are, and I know that you cannot do it. So I'm going to provide for you a way to come back to me. I'm going to provide a way for you to heal the relationship, to atone for your lack of holiness, to atone for your, for your, your lack of righteousness. And I want you to do these sacrifices, and that will be a way of returning to me. And they will make up for the bad, the wrong that you've done. Now, I don't want to get into details. I will say it's entirely possible that the reason God chose this animal sacrifices is because it's what they were familiar with. 
In other words, other nations were already doing this. So perhaps God was just looking for a way to call them to do an action which would help them return to God, to repent of what they'd done. And he chooses a mechanism that they're already used to, that they're already familiar with in the world. That's possible. It's also possible that something about sacrifice itself is a universal truth because we know that in the gospel, it says that there is no atonement without blood and there it's referring to Jesus' sacrifice. I don't know which is true. It doesn't matter tonight. That's not our conversation. Our conversation tonight is just that God asked them to do it and now he's disgusted by it. And the question becomes, what happened? I think it's fair to say, in fact, I know it's fair to say because when we keep reading, we'll see this. But it's fair to say that what happened is they missed the point. There was a purpose in what he asked them to do. There was a reason in giving it to them. And they begin to do it, and they begin to miss the point. And as they miss the point, even the things God asked them to do begin to, to not feel good. I think this is something we can understand. We can all understand these things we like people to do, but if they do them with the wrong attitude or in the wrong ways, or with the wrong reasons, or they're not out of love for us, then suddenly we don't want it anymore. Let me just try to give you a really specific kind of example, which I think something like this has happened to all of us because of our humanity. This kind of thing happens all the time. Let's pretend that you have somebody that loves you. I hope that's not hard to pretend. Actually, I know it's true. God loves you and I love you. So if you're struggling with that, you can go there. But, but let's, let's think of somebody who loves you. And let's pretend that your birthday's coming up. And for whatever reason, it's been a long year, and you just really feel like you want someone to do something special for your birthday. You want someone who loves you to do something that says, I love you. And so you say to them, here's what I would like. And depending on your personality, you might say, I want you to take me out to dinner. If you would, I think that would be awesome. Or you might say, I want a big party, and I want you to invite all my friends. People are at different places. But whatever it is, imagine that this is what you present to somebody. This is the things I want you to do. And you kind of lay out a few ideas for them because it's what you want and you just want to be feel special. Now let's pretend the person you've asked to do this is having a bad week. And they're grumpy. And so they feel obligated to do what you asked them to do. But they don't feel warm about it. <laughs> and so they start doing the things you ask them to do but there's a real edge to them, right? We've all experienced this. And then suddenly they start getting like legalistic about it. They're like, well, you said you want a cake. What kind of cake do you want? And you're like, well, just something I really like. Well, what do you like? I want to make sure I get what you like. Well, how about, you know, vanilla with chocolate frosting? Okay, that's fine. How big do you want the cake? I don't know about this, but no, I need, I need specifics. What size do you want this cake? Give me the inches. And, and the more they start going down this road, the more you feel like, this is not what I asked for. <laughs> They're doing everything I asked for, but somehow, this is not what I asked for. And at a certain point, you might say to them, I don't even want it anymore. I'm kind of just disgusted by it now. It's not what I want. Because what you wanted was an affirmation of their love for you. And all you got was a, a rote, dutiful fulfillment of an obligation in resentment. And I think there's a, 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 an aspect of this. There's more going on with the Israelites, but this at least gives us a picture of how God could say, do this, and then say, gosh, I don't even want you to do this anymore. Because your attitude is not one of repairing the relationship. Your attitude is not one of repenting and returning to righteousness. 
Your attitude is something else. So let's keep reading. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? I asked for you to come to my courts. I didn't ask for you to trample on them. <laughs> I asked for you to bring me sacrifices, but this, this is not what I ask. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Again, we've talked about how he called them to celebrate. He called them to the festivals. But now he's like, they're so stupid. I don't even want them. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. Who appointed them? God did. But your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. Wow, this is strong language, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Wow. Wow. Talk about fear of judgment from God. This is condemnation, isn't it? There's no way to describe this except that God is condemning them. He's judging them as worthless and meaningless and their prayers as meaning nothing to him. He won't even try to listen. I close my eyes. I plug my ears. Now, it turns out God isn't just telling them this to vent. It turns out in a few verses, he's going to tell them how they can fix this. But I do want you to see for now that there is a judgment here, isn't there? The judgment is he's not listening anymore. They're doing something so wrong that it's led to their condemnation. This is how a lot of us think of justice. God's judgment. God's condemnation. They're doing something wrong, so God is just. He is right in saying to them, I'm not even going to listen. And you know what? That's true. <laughs> because God is right. Because he's always right. But I want to say something before we move on. First thing I want to remind you of is that what's happening here to the Israelites, it cannot happen to us. And here's why. The sacrifices they're offering, they're offering with the wrong attitude, the wrong intent, the wrong purpose, their sacrifices have become meaningless. But our atonement before God comes from Christ's sacrifice. And his sacrifice is never meaningless. His sacrifice is offered completely, perfectly. You understand that? And it's offered in a way that is eternal. It doesn't have to be re-offered again. The author of Hebrews makes this point very clearly. The sacrifice of Jesus is infinitely better than any of the Old Testament sacrifices, which were simply shadows and pictures pointing to Jesus. For us, Paul says very clearly, there is no condemnation ever for the believer. And why is that? Because the sacrifice of Jesus, which was intended for atonement, is perfectly holy. It's complete. And it's successful. So there's never condemnation for us. So I want to be clear before we move on. What is happening here to the Israelites, where the sacrifices have become meaningless cannot happen for us because for the Israelites, it was their sacrifices, which were always flawed. But for the church and the believers, it's the sacrifice of Christ, which is never flawed. It's only perfect. Okay, having said that, so condemnation for you. Nonetheless, what they're doing wrong, we can also do wrong. <laughs> and it matters. Not because we'll be condemned, but for other reasons, which I hope you'll see as we keep going. So, there is this idea here. There we go. There is this idea here of judgment. 
But I want to be clear that while this is a part of justice, condemnation, the right judgment of God upon people, the, 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 the condemnation for those who deserve to be condemned, while there is an aspect of this injustice, that is not what justice mostly means in Scripture. This is just one sort of outgrowth of it. It's related, but it's not just about common, uh, uh, condemnation. So hold that thought. We're going to come back to this verse in a second. We will read the next few verses, which will clarify and tie things together. But before we do, I want to talk about our common views of justice. I want to talk about the ways we think of justice, which seem to fit somewhat what we just read and make us afraid of the idea and tend to make us think justice is not a teaching we want to hear. <laughs> Even when we think justice is good, it doesn't always appeal to us. I mean, we know it should appeal to us, but we're not sure it actually does. I think there's a couple of really common ways our culture thinks of justice. One is fairness. One is that the idea of justice is fairness. And again, there's something in this that is good. We all have felt things were unfair, right? I think that a lot when I think about poor little Isaiah or others sick kids. I think that just doesn't feel fair, right? We feel unfairness. Let's be honest, we're particularly sensitive to it in ourselves. When we're the, the ones who are being treated unfairly, we're really alert to it. And we think of justice in terms of unfairness. And one of the ways we think of unfairness is in equal treatment, right? If people aren't treated equally, then we feel that's unfair. And there's a lot of truth to this, right? I mean, if if, if, we, if we, we look at a man and a woman doing the same job in the workplace and we say, and correctly so, it feels unfair if the woman is not given the same pay or not treated the same as the man is treated in the same workplace for the same work. So there is, there's a reality to this. Things like, you know, bigotry and racism are, are, are huge extreme examples of unfairness. Treating people partially, not impartially because of some stupid thing that doesn't actually change who they are. So there is something to this. There's something to the idea of equal treatment being important. And yet, it's interesting that when we're kids, this seems really important. But the older we get, the more we realize this is a complicated idea. And it doesn't actually work. That simply doesn't. In fact, as parents, you learn pretty quickly that Equal treatment of all your kids cannot mean the same treatment of all your kids because if you give the same treatment to all your kids, it ends up being, guess what, unfair. <laughs> Look, the truth is that we're different and we're complicated and we're varied. And some of my kids would love to have a large birthday party with lots of guests. And some of my kids would love to have a very small birthday party with almost no guests. And if I decide to treat them both the same, it will turn out that one of them is being treated with love and the other one is not being treated with love. But they're being treated the same. There's context, there's, there's, there's environments, there's situations that make it complicated to think about what equal treatment means. Now, I'm not making excuses for the most egregious examples, it's like we talk about of racism and bigotry and oppression. Clearly, clearly, we, we should aim for fairness in those things. But even there, don't we have all sorts of complicated questions about what it means now to treat somebody fairly that was treated unfairly in the past? Should we treat people of all races the same today? Some people say absolutely we should. 
Others say we shouldn't because we didn't in the past and we have to make up for that. So the question of fairness and equal treatment, it's complicated. And that alone cannot be what justice is. There's another way we think of fairness, and that's tit for tat. What does tit for tat mean? It means you hurt me, I hurt you. Seems fair. There's a biblical precedent for it. It's called an eye for an eye. Jesus said in the Gospels, you've completely misunderstood the whole eye for an eye thing, and you should stop doing it that way. One of Gandhi's biographers, uh, and the quote's often attributed to Gandhi, but his biographer never said he said it. He just said it to sort of describe Gandhi's philosophy, said that if the whole world deals with eye for an eye, the whole world ends up blind. <laughs> because the question of tit for tat is where does it start and where does it end? Right? You can trace back your injuries forever and therefore justify injuries going forward forever. But guess what? All the people that injured you, injured you can do the same. So where does it start and where does it end? At one point do you say, well, that injury was generations in the past, so it doesn't matter anymore. And at what point do you say, we're going to stop and not continue to injure each other into the future? So even this idea of tit for tat, it just doesn't get us there, does it? Just, it doesn't feel just at a certain point. It's too complicated. It's too nuanced. There's way too much to it. It's just not that simple. So what we discover is that fairness is not a very good description of justice. It doesn't get us there. There's another way we think of justice, and that's people getting what they deserve. People getting what they deserve. Now, in a large social context, this sounds exactly right, right? You, you commit a crime, you should get punished. You don't commit a crime, you shouldn't get punished, right? We, we all recognize the injustice in guilty people going free and innocent people being punished. So again, there's truth to this, just as there is to fairness. But even here, we run into problems and complications almost right away. You know what's interesting is every legal system in the world has to make a decision. As soon as they say that justice is about people getting what they deserve, every legal system in the world has to make this decision. They have to recognize that we're bad at making these judgments, that sometimes we get it wrong, and we think somebody's guilty who's innocent, and we think somebody's innocent who's guilty, and then we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to make an error, which is more important? And the fact that we have to ask ourselves, is it more important to let the guilty go free or more important to, to punish the innocent is already leading us into weird territory, but that is exactly the question we have to ask. And in America, we decided that it is better to err on the side of letting guilty people go free so that we don't put innocent people in jail. That's why we start with what's called the presumption of innocence. We say we're going to assume everybody's innocent. You have to prove they're guilty. And that way, if we do make a mistake, it's harder to make the mistake of declaring people guilty who were innocent. But it also means we're more likely to let guilty people go. Now, even with that, it's not that simple because then you introduce things like fairness and you introduce racism and bigotry and you introduce the fact that we don't see things clearly and we do end up putting guilty people in prison. I mean, we should. We do end up putting innocent people in prison. But the fact that we have to have this discussion about whether it's better to err on the side of putting too many people in prison or not putting enough already shows us how complicated this issue has become, doesn't it? Because when it comes right down to it, who gets to decide what people deserve? Where does mercy play in that? How do we decide? 
people getting what they deserve. Again, there's, there's an aspect of truth to it. We all feel incensed when someone clearly deserves punishment and they don't get it. Or when someone clearly doesn't deserve punishment and they do get it. When we feel like the justice system has been too harsh or too lenient, it makes us angry. But you know what's interesting? We could take the same case and go to two different groups of people and one of them will say it was too harsh and the other one will say it was too lenient. That's how bad we are at knowing what people deserve. So people get, getting what they deserve, that isn't a good enough description of justice either. But these are the ways we think of it. That justice is about people getting what they deserve, being treated equally, and, and, and sort of this tit-for-tat approach. These are the things that we see as justice. But the fact that we can never get there to what justice really looks like, the fact that we can't arrive there through these, these definitions we have should be an indication to us we are not defining justice well. Even Scripture has a problem with the way, most importantly Scripture, has a problem with the way we've just defined it. Let me ask you this. There's an interesting thing. It says that Jesus, his death on the cross, demonstrated his love for us. That we get. It was a sacrifice. He loved us. But you know what else Scripture says? It says that Jesus' death on the cross also demonstrated his justice. Now, how is it just for the innocent Lord of the universe to suffer on behalf of the guilty people of the universe? We talk about, we use examples of people doing that in courts, but really, honestly, would we call it just if someone who loved someone on death row said, I will die in their place, would we say, that's justice? No, we'd say that's weird. <laughs> because someone's not getting what they deserve to someone's in that case. And yet scripture says this is exactly what Jesus did. And it not only says it's loving, it says it is just, it is right. It is justice. So we're missing something, aren't we? We're missing something in our understanding of justice. Not only that, if we go back and we say, well, our problem with justice is we don't know what people deserve. Well, then we say, okay, so God's the only one who can be perfectly just. That's fine. I can accept that. But if it still just means people getting what they deserve, well, then we have a problem with the whole gospel to begin with. Because if the justice is just about people getting what they deserve and God is perfectly just, it should just end with all of us wiped out. Because deep down we all know that all of us have been guilty of something. So, now I want you to hold that thought. The thought that we don't know what justice is. <laughs> that these ideas of fairness and, and tit for tat and people getting what they deserve, they're related. They're not unrelated. There's something in those that are good, but they go awry so quickly. There must be something bigger that helps guide when those things work and when they don't. So to find our way there, let's go back to the verses that we put on hold a moment ago. Let's go back and let's see what God is actually so unhappy about. Why are there religious overtures, their sacrifices and even their prayers? And he even says, having more of them doesn't matter. Why? are the very things that God calls for, not only no longer meaningful to God, but repulsive to him. Let's see what he says going on in Isaiah. Isaiah says, your hands are full of blood. Before we even move on, this begins to give us a little bit of a hint, right? They're offering him these beautiful gifts. It's like someone 
has baked you a beautiful loaf of bread or cake or cookies, whatever your favorite thing to eat is, and they've made it perfectly. They've done all they were supposed to do. But as they bring it to hand it to you, their hands are dripping in blood. And you might find yourself repulsed by a food that otherwise you would enjoy. Well, this is how it is with God. He says, your hands are filled with blood. You're bringing me your sacrifices and your prayers, but they're, they're coming in this incredibly repulsive manner. He says, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. You know, really, the best approximation, and, and again, these are all approximations, but better than any of the ones we've given so far, that it's, that it's treating people equally or tit for tat or everybody getting what they deserve. The best approximation of what justice means in Scripture is right there. He says, stop doing wrong and learn to do right. You know what justice is in Scripture? It's making wrong things right. That's it. Justice is taking the wrong things and making them right. It's fixing the wrongness to make it right. You can see hints of this in everything we talked about. When people are being treated unequally and we see that it's wrong, the way you make it right is you treat people fairly. Right? When, when somebody isn't getting what they deserve, when someone is getting away scot-free and we see it's wrong, justice is making that right. At its simplest, justice is making wrong things right. But you can see how that's different than simply these, these ideas of just everything being equal or everybody getting so-called what they deserve. It's, it's a much more important question of what's wrong and how do we make it right. But he goes on. He actually goes on to tell us some of the ways that they can make what's wrong right. How do they wash themselves? How do they clean their hands? What exactly is the blood that they're bringing to him? What exactly are they missing? What does justice look like at this moment for them? And he goes on to tell them. He says, seek justice. And he defines it this way. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless and plead the case of the widow. It's pretty clear here that seeking justice doesn't just mean treating everybody the same. It's pretty clear here that seeking justice doesn't just mean everybody getting what they deserve. Because notice something carefully here. When you defend the oppressed, he doesn't make a comment on whether the oppressed are guilty or innocent of anything. Can you be oppressed and still be guilty? Of course you can. But he doesn't give us that question. He doesn't ask us to consider that. Can you be fatherless and still be guilty? Of course you can. But that's not the question he asks. Can you be a widow and be a bad person? You can. But that's not the question he asks. He says, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fathers. Plead the case of the widow. How is this justice? How is this taking what's wrong and doing what's right? It's not about punishment. And it's not about fairness. It's about fixing something. What is it that's wrong that God is asking them to fix? You know what it is that's wrong? It's a wrongness of the universe. God says it is wrong that the oppressed are oppressed, regardless of what they deserve. He says it is wrong that the powerless are abused because of their powerlessness. 
God says it is wrong that those with power choose to use their power to victimize those without power. It doesn't mean the person with power is better or worse than the person without power. There's no judgment made about that. But there is a judgment made that a wrongness in the world that is important enough for God to mention several times when he talks about justice, that a wrongness in the world is that those without power are automatically more vulnerable and are taken advantage of by those with power. And he says, this is the problem the Israelite culture had. They were doing their sacrifices. They were following their religious duties, but they weren't defending those who were powerless. He says, essentially, if you are not powerless in any area, then justice is using your power to add to their power in defending themselves. Now, again, this is not fair. Do you hear that? Let's say that you're not the oppressor. It's not your fault that they're powerless. It's not your fault that their husband died or their father left. It's not your fault that somebody else is taking advantage of them. And yet, God says to you, use your power to defend them. You take injury upon yourself by limiting your power to defend them. It's not fair. It has nothing to do with fair. But it's just. And it's not really punishing the guilty. Because again, defending the, the powerless doesn't mean that they're not guilty. But it's also true that fairness and people getting what they deserve can better bloom in an environment where people with power are using it to defend those without power. But it's not the same thing. You know, of course, who's the best example of this. This is what makes sense of what I mentioned before, that Jesus' death on the cross is called what? Justice. Now, if that means fair, it ain't fair. If that means people getting what they deserve, it isn't that either. But if it means the person with the most power in the entire universe uses his power to defend those with the least power in the entire universe, then isn't that exactly what happens at the cross? It is exactly what happens at the cross. That, says God, is justice. That's kind of radical. <laughs> and it's so much harder than fairness. Micah is another prophet. Micah talks a lot about these things too. What I like about this passage we're going to read here in chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, is that Micah talks about his response. Micah's been talking about the things that God's been saying to the Israelites. You guys are oppressing the poor. You're walking over the top of them. Amos uses really strong language and says that basically the rich people are standing on the heads of the poor to elevate themselves. Instead of using their power to defend those without power, they're using their power to increase their own power. Micah similarly says that. So Micah says after he hears God out of his mouth say to the Israelites, you've, you've abandoned justice. Micah says, well, what then am I supposed to do? And this is what he says. 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of ram, with ten thousands of rivers of olive oil? See, Micah does what we all do rhetorically. He actually knows his own answer to his question here in a second. But he does what a lot of us do without being rhetorical about it. He says, look, if the problem is that God doesn't like the few sacrifices I'm doing, what he must want is for me to go big. So I'll take a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil. That must be it. He wants more. That doesn't match what God said to Isaiah or through Isaiah, right? That just means you give me more repulsive stuff. That makes me more repulsed, not less. I love this. That explains this next line, which could be really troubling. He says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Micah isn't actually suggesting that human sacrifice is what God wants, but he's pointing out if we really think that what needs to happen is we need to go bigger, that God wants bigger sacrifices, well then I guess the biggest of all would be to sacrifice my own firstborn. But of course Micah's answer to this is no, that's not what God wants. (laughs) That would repulse him even more. He says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. O mortal. Some of you may have memorized this verse as he has shown you, O man. But this is, the word is literally mortal. So you women don't, don't get to skip by this. He has shown you, O human. O mortal. But there's this emphasis in our mortality on our powerlessness, isn't there? There's this emphasis on our own frailty and incompleteness, isn't there? I mean, what can we do? It's like Micah's saying, we're we're flawed anyway. How can we possibly make a sacrifice that will mean anything to God? But he says, but God's already told us. Don't play dumb. He says, he has shown you, O mortal, is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I memorized this. The translation was to do justice to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Same ideas. Justice is something you do. I really kind of like the emphasis here, that we are to do justice, and we are to cherish kindness. Because sometimes it feels like we pretend to do the opposite, and it makes it easier for us to be self-righteous. If we can cherish justice... And say, well, I don't have to help that person because they're getting what they deserve. Again, that's the wrong understanding of justice, but that's sometimes how we do it. If we can cherish justice and then just do kindness, well, you can be kind and not mean to people and still not use your power to defend them, can't you? You can avoid oppressing them, and that might be kind. But he goes the other way. He says, cherish kindness. Cherish mercy. Make that the virtue that you exalt. And while you're doing that, act justly. And if justice means sacrificing your power for the sake of defending those who are powerless, you can see how cherishing kindness would lead to acting acting justly, wouldn't it? They're not at odds. They're the same. And of course, you are mortal. So in all of this, you should walk humbly with your God. Because self-righteousness leads to you to be not kind or just, doesn't it? It's interesting how self-righteousness can mask as justice. But according to God, it doesn't work that way. True justice requires humility, not condemnation. 
Justice is something you do. Mercy and kindness is something you cherish. Kindness is, in fact, more likely to be done if it's loved. But I think justice is also more likely to be done if kindness is loved. Just to, to let you know, I'm not cherry-picking verses. These are just, I could have found, literally, there, there are probably hundreds of verses like this. I didn't count, but I think there are hundreds, maybe even thousands, where justice is seen in this light. So let me read some of these. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. He says, do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great but judge your neighbor fairly. I love this because, again, in our convolutions, we can even think that it's good to show partiality to the poor, but not to the rich. Here he says, don't show partiality to anybody. (laughs) Because, again, being poor doesn't make you innocent. But it does mean that you should be defended. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who's been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, all the powerless. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. There are certainly aspects in all of these of fairness, and there's aspects on all of these of people getting what they deserve, but the understanding of when fairness makes sense and when people getting what they deserve makes sense is all under this understanding of doing what's right and making the wrong things right. And it's an understanding that one of the main ways we make wrong things right is by using whatever power we have to defend those who have less power. So, Here's the thing, though. Our focus this Advent is not on what you should do. It just isn't. I mean, I hope that you will do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. I think, frankly, your life will go better if you do. (coughs) But that's not our emphasis. Some Advent prior years and most churches, what you do with Advent is you focus on qualities that we want to aspire to, joy and hope and love and peace. But this year, we're taking a different approach. We're looking at the attributes of God and reflecting on them, hoping that that will lead us to a genuine celebration as we think more about the holiness of God and now about the justice of God. So that becomes the question. If this is what justice is, and our God is holy in his justice, if he is perfect in his justice, what does that say of our God? What does that look like? How does that come to play? We've already talked a little bit about how that makes sense now of the gospel. That it says that God laid aside his rights and power as God to become a human being. Is that not what Christmas is about? The incarnation is God becoming a little teeny tiny baby. For us to begin to grasp what a fall it is, What an incredible step down from being the transcendent other God of the universe to becoming a human baby. Honestly, again, this is part of God's otherness. If I were God and I was even trying to approximate his goodness, I would have just dropped in at the age of 32. That seems like a nice prime moment. Right? You're not vulnerable then. Right? Be a strong, strapping 30-year-old man in that culture. You're good to go. Be rich. Be a political leader. God could have been any of those things. But he drops himself in as the most vulnerable moment 
of a human's life. But that makes sense if he's a God of justice. If he's a God who sees that his power is to be used to enable us, to defend us in our powerlessness, well, then that makes sense. That's who he is. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 30, 18, because it first looks like it's about scales and balance and tension, but that's because we don't understand the word justice. Let me read this. It says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Hear that again. And I'm going to say instead of for, I'm going to say because, because that's what the four means here. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. Why? Because he's a God of justice. That's weird. <laughs> if you think justice means giving what you deserve, then how is being compassionate and gracious mean that, that's, that you are compassionate and gracious because you're a God of justice? You know, I, a friend of mine, a uh, pastor friend of mine just recently shared, in fact, I was already thinking about these things and working on them. He did a, a, a sermon on justice, and I thought, oh, interesting. But one of the things he said was this. He said that he's heard in the past, he's heard people define grace, graciousness, mercy, or compassion, and justice in these ways. That justice is getting what you deserve. That compassion or mercy is getting less than you deserve. And that grace is getting more than you deserve. That's kind of cool. But it makes nonsense of this verse if that's actually how we're supposed to understand those words. Let me, let me read it to you that way. Yet the Lord longs to give you more than you deserve. Therefore, he will rise to give you less than you deserve because our God is a God who gives you what you deserve. That makes no sense whatsoever. Because they're all put at odds with each other, aren't they? But that's not what this verse says. This verse says that our God is a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, it means that he wants to give you more than you deserve. And it means, I think, the idea of compassion. I love the fact that if you read through the Gospels, it talks about Jesus being compassionate. At one point, it very specifically uses, where we translate compassion, it uses a word that means indignant. When Jesus comes to the, to the, to the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus is dead, most of your translations, it says, and Jesus was filled with compassion. What it actually says is, and Jesus was indignant. Indignant with who? With Lazarus? No, Lazarus died. He can't be indignant with Lazarus. That's not his fault. Jesus is indignant with death. See, I think compassion means not accepting the wrongness that's in front of you and seeking to make it better. It's not about giving people less than they deserve. It's about not accepting that they deserve this wrongness at all. That's how Jesus was compassionate. His apostle said, this blind man... Is it his fault or his parents' fault? And Jesus was indignant with them. Said, it's not either of their faults. And I'm going to show you that what God likes to do is fix that wrongness. So I think it makes more sense to read this as, yet the Lord longs to give you better than you deserve. Therefore, he will rise to show you that he will not accept your wrongness. Because our God is a God who loves to make wrong things right. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Suddenly the words fit together. And then 
when we realize that this is what a God of justice is, it says how blessed are all those who wait for him. Think about how the way we often think of justice, getting what we deserve and realizing a lot of us deserve really bad stuff and then we're supposed to be happy as we wait for that to come. And most of us think, I guess if I was a better person, I would be happy waiting for God's judgment. But what if this verse means God likes to make wrong things right? And how blessed are those who wait for him to do that? Blessed means blissfully satisfied. That fits. Things happen that are full of injustice. And we can be torn up inside with that. Or we can actually be blissfully satisfied as we wait for the Lord to make it right. Now, we might have to wait a long time. But the promise is that our God is a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, compassion is what he loves to give. And he longs to be gracious to you. And that is who you're waiting on. Not somebody who wants to condemn you. And his hands are tied because Jesus died on the cross. And he's like, oh, I really want to condemn you, but I guess I have to let you, let you go. No, it's a God who says the world is wrong and I'm willing to give up all my power to make it right. And I just ask, you wait on me to do that. Fixing things doesn't just mean punishment for the unrepentant guilty, but sometimes it does. Fixing things doesn't just mean recompense for the oppressed, but sometimes it does. Fixing things doesn't mean everyone being treated equally, but sometimes it does. All these things make sense within the context of making wrong things right. They make no sense if they become in and of themselves the goals. We've all recognized that sometimes justice seems to work against the right thing, right? That's the dilemma of living in a so-called just society. And it's not just America got it wrong. It's there has never been a just society where this hasn't been a dilemma that sometimes justice leads to the wrong answer. Because we forget that it's about making wrong things right. But as a quality of God, justice is the promise that God will make things right completely, without flaw, without disappointment, in his holy otherness, he will make things absolutely 100% right. It is incomprehensible for us to ever contemplate heaven and understand just how right it will be. Do you understand that? We, we hope it will be. We approximate what it will be. But if we think too hard, we always end up finding the flaws. But those flaws are in us. That's why we find them. They're not in God. I stopped watching Walking Dead. I guess it's over now, about eight seasons after I stopped watching it, because, because Walking Dead drove me nuts. Every year you had the same formula. They would find a perfect utopian place, and from the very beginning you knew it wasn't going to be a perfect utopian place. Because there was always a flaw. Justice and redemption are wedded hand in hand. They're not opposites. Redemption is making wrong things right. Justice is making wrong things right. For those who refuse to be redeemed, it may mean giving them what they've asked for and what they deserve. For those who were redeemed, it means not giving them what they deserve. But they both are about making wrong things right. And they work together. 
not in opposition. Our confidence in a God that we wait for who is a God of justice, it's the confidence we can have when we see racism and oppression and we see no recourse in our culture and humanity to make it go away. It's what we cling to when we see any injustice from small to large. It's what we hope in when we see a child who's ill. Blessed, happy, satisfied, blissfully are those who wait for him. And notice this. Blessed are all who wait for him. Because in this area, everyone is treated equally. It doesn't say blessed are some who wait for him. Some who wait especially well. Some who are really good at waiting. Some who already think like God. It says, blessed are all who wait for him. Every single person who counts on the God of justice wins. Everyone. Doesn't matter your race, intellect, creed, abilities, power, strength, thoughts, philosophy. None of that matters. If you're waiting on the Lord, it's there. The access to the gospel, I, this, this, this drives me nuts. This is something that became so clear to me a few years ago, and I, I struggle to help people who really are kind of set against this to understand the gospel is not exclusive in the way they worry about. The problem with the gospel, they say, how, how come there's only one way to the Lord? That is unfair. And I say, no, that is what makes it fair. If I say you can get into this school and some of you can get into this school by paying a lot of money and some of you can get into this school by having really good academic standards and some of you can get into the school by being of a particular race, and if you're not any of those things, you can't get into the school, that's unfair. But if I say everybody enters the school through the same door, and I'm sorry that I'm not allowing you to break down the walls to get into the school, but that door is big enough for everybody, that's not exclusive. The gospel is the same way. Everybody gets to heaven through Jesus, and that's what makes it fair, because nothing else matters. Your power, your access, your abilities, the things you count on to get you up and ahead in life are irrelevant when it comes to the gospel. Because all who wait on the Lord are blessed. All. No one gets it a special way due to special access, but all come through Christ who is available to all people. Lord, help us to remember that the holiness of God means that even in your justice, you are sometimes strange and difficult to us. And it's not that your sense of justice is so foreign to ours, but that your picture of the universe is so much larger. And your ability to balance all the scales and see how all the pieces can be made whole again is simply beyond our comprehension. Lord, we recognize that no one but you could have been willing to limit yourself to human flesh, to death on a cross, that no one but you could have even understood that this would demonstrate not only your love, but your justice. As the power of the gospel not only forgives, but redeems, and ultimately will right all the wrongs at the Lord's return, help us to be those who wait upon you to make all things right. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. Don't forget, the next week is a virtual service. And go with God.
Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com, and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.